big stopped you lay on the horn and you ask yourself where is my cancer unicorn but we're at the gate with your cancer card we're your passport date cause cancer's damn hard oh thanks cancer thanks cancer Victories in the dark. You're listening to Thanks Cancer. I'm Mimi Hall. I'm Leanna House. We're two cancer friends. We are not doctors. No, and we're not shrinks. We're not nurses or anything like it. And because of that, we are going to use some appropriately obscene language. Let's just call it salty. Anyway, we hope you'll enjoy it. This is the podcast we wish we had when we were dealing with our treatment. So Mimi, we have a guest today. I'm super excited about our guest today, Leanna. And I met her through you, actually. No, I think I met her through Dana Farber. We met her at the same time. I remember meeting you at the Do It Together workshop briefly. It was before me. Oh, my God. And then I met you two together at the conference. I'm going to blame Kimo Brin. That's fine. (laughs) I'm going to thank Kimo for bringing us together. So today we have Christina Crespi, also known as Crespi Cream, (laughs) on her social media, which is on point. And um, we were super excited to meet her because she kind of embodies this young, sassy 2.0 that's got a lot of fierce knowledge attached to it, too. That is true. Yeah, I was attracted right away to your awareness, your calmness, your knowledge, and just general chic. General chic. Thanks, ladies. Absolutely. We we went when we went to this young adult cancer conference. She had a movie. That's right. I forgot about. That. Yeah, I, you can blame Chemo Brain for that. I'll blame Chemo Brain for like. Not I'm gonna have recalling. to blame Chemo Brain on yeah. that. I forgot we were with a star. No, we are with a star. It was this great movie about. It was like a short film about um, life after cancer and like how hard it is being a young adult when you don't fit into like one community or another. Um, so her and a, a friend of hers mm-hmm. just just decided to make it. It started out as a quality improvement project for Dana actually through the GI specialty. They wanted to increase enrollment for the young adult program. So you're like the hip, cool kids (laughs) bringing in the business. So we decided to do a film because with chemo brain, it's so hard to absorb information, especially you get handed so many papers throughout the process. So I suggested a film and it turned out to be in the budget and we focused on mental health Mm. and just the isolation factor. And... I'm really proud of it. It's just a project that I was able to work on from start to finish, and um, I'm glad that you two liked it. And the feelings are mutual, by the way. <laughs> and it's available on YouTube, isn't it? Yes. So I will link to that in oh, our thank bio you. so that we can yeah. so we can get some traffic to that if you are dealing with cancer or know someone who is. Yeah. This is a good mental health resource. So, Christina, tell us a little bit about... Um, who you are now and who you were before you got diagnosed with cancer. Sure. So my name's Christina. I'm 30 years old. Um, I grew up in the South Shore in um, Weymouth, Mass. And I'm a registered nurse. I was living in California working as a traveling nurse before my cancer experience. I was active traveling all the time and just living the typical 20-something life. Although not not quite all the way typical. Typical for me, I suppose, but you're right. Not not quite typical. 
<laughs> it sounds really fantastic. And then, like, so your life was going, and you were how old when you got diagnosed? Like, I was 27, but I started to experience symptoms at 25. So I was sick for about a year and a half before my diagnosis. And two years of just not knowing what was wrong. Yeah. That sounds terrible. It was. <laughs> well, and one of the things that freaks me out, too, is that you were a nurse. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, something that I dealt with and other people we've talked to have dealt with is feeling like unheard and, oh, you know, I'm not a medical professional, but I feel, think something's wrong. I mean, how is that for you going through this as someone who has knowledge and who knows something's wrong, something's amiss? It was still a challenge. I mean, I'm thankful and lucky to know what I know because I was able to be my own advocate. But it also gave me crippling anxiety because as I was going through certain treatments or surgeries, I almost felt like I knew too much and I knew the risks because I had seen them with my own eyes. Um, Your informed consent was a little more informed than most? Yeah, I would say so. All I can say is I I feel like it was a blessing and a curse. I, I wouldn't have it any other way, but it was just different to see things from the other side and it's changed me forever. When I take care of people now, I just feel blessed to have experienced both sides and I I feel like I have a different approach and I can relate on an entirely new level. We, and we need more medical professionals to get cancer. <laughs> Perhaps. <laughs> maybe, maybe not. But I, I feel like I, I want to teach eventually at a college because I just feel like I've, I've seen both sides and... That's a valuable addition. Thanks. Mm -hmm. It's something I'd like to get into eventually, but it's kind of hard to put into words how my experience was. I would say, yeah, a blessing and a curse. (laughs) So tell us about how the diagnosis happened, what was going on during that time. Oh, well, were we going to talk about some of her history? Well, let's go, let's go mm. way back. Let's go way back. Way, way back to the way, way back. <laughs> let's I'm, get into I'm it. In chronological order. <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> I'll get into it. So at age nine, I started experiencing some odd symptoms. I was an athlete and I would go into rhabdomyolysis, which is typically um, something experienced by CrossFitters or Um, marathon runners, people who overuse their muscles and cause massive muscle breakdowns, but I would experience this just from playing a game of basketball. Um, So is that like what we would call bonking? Like when you bonk out, you know, and you kind of collapse, like what did it feel like for you? Do you call that bonking? We call that bonking in Bikram. I don't know. We call it bonking in CrossFit and stuff like that. It's when you're basically dehydrated, your muscles Mm, start to give out. Pass out. It's it's worse than that. It's like, it can be from protein, like sort of Mm. too much consumption of the muscles or like lack of hydration. That sounds right. I've never heard that term, but you're Mm -hmm. describing essentially what was happening. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, your muscles break down, you become very dehydrated, and you eventually end up like urinating myoglobin, like your your urine turns a different color because oh. your muscles are essentially filtering through your bloodstream and being like tra- metabolized by your kidneys. Mm-hmm. And you can go into acute kidney failure mm-hmm. as a consequence. And what happens is you end up being hospitalized and just pumped with IV fluids. Um, so this was happening to me as a child just by playing regular sports. And after seven years, of feeling these symptoms, I was diagnosed with a mitochondrial disease, which seven years. Yeah, seven years. I was seen by muscle specialists at Boston Children's. Um, they were 
mainly looking into types of muscular dystrophy because it only really affected my mm-hmm. muscles and my fatigue level. I dealt with chronic fatigue, but I kept playing basketball and softball. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you're tough. Because yeah. I loved it. Yeah. Put your life on hold. No. I'm, I think I had things to do. <laughs> you, do you think it helped you probably playing these sports or like? I mean, I would say, yeah. And a lot of the perseverance and experiences I've had as a cancer patient, I, I kind of attribute to my my athlete days. I totally get that. Yeah. You can deal with pain and suffering a lot better. Absolutely. You, you know what you can demand from your body. Right. Mm. You know how to push it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. True. And just yeah. the concept of getting back up after you're knocked down so many times, I just feel like that's essential in sports. Well, also, you were like running with weights on with your condition. So, I mean, when we can True. talk about like pushing ourselves to the uh-huh. limit, for you, that was probably like a different thing. 50% more, 100% mm. more because of your condition. That's interesting. I guess I never thought about it that way, but I was eventually diagnosed at 16. Um, at this point, I had had a massive muscle breakdown and was hospitalized for rhabdo. Um, and I was told that I could no longer play sports and that I would just have to listen to my body and take a wide variety of supplements. Um, but they were really helpful. By the time I reached my young adulthood, I could pretty much pass for a normal person for what I consider normal. <laughs> right. um, you know, right. I could work full time. I wasn't in pain every day. I was the strongest I had ever been. I was able to exercise mildly, but um, still able to go for short hikes and go mm-hmm. to the gym. And the only time that my um, that my condition really affected me is if something else was underlying. Like if I had the flu, mm-hmm. then my symptoms would come back. I would feel the pain, the fatigue, mm-hmm. um, the burning in my muscles. And so if I were to ever experience symptoms, which wasn't often, I knew something else was going on. Mm -hmm. And that's what happened. When I turned 25, I was living in California, working as a traveling nurse. I had just moved to the San Francisco Bay Area and all of my symptoms returned. And Mm -hmm. I was just stuck in my apartment. I could barely walk. And I was just thinking, what is happening? Mm -hmm. Um, This is not normal. Right. Now, did you you ever been given a heads up with the condition you've been diagnosed with before that this could have a higher rate of cancer? Or was was there any correlation between that and the cancer diagnosis that would come? Not that I know of. Um, With the specific type of mito disease that I have, it's called complex three deficiency. It is associated with more neurologic conditions. Hmm. Um, they, They did give me the heads up in terms of that, but cancer was never a word that was used in my doctor's right. appointments. Um, and to this day, there's still no evidence to suggest that there's any correlation, but I kind of have a hard time believing that when I think about the trajectory of events. So what was that like? Talk about the trajectory of events. Yeah. At 27, I was diagnosed with colon cancer. Um, at that point, the gastroenterologist told me that the tumor in my colon had likely been there for 10 years because of its size. And 10 How big was it? It was seven centimeters. Wow. And so at that point, 10 years back was when I had been diagnosed with mitochondrial disease and was started to be treated with um, all the supplements that I was taking. And those all promote mitochondrial function, cellular efficiency and growth. So I can't help but wonder if those two are somehow related. Also, a lot of people are taking those supplements. True. Now too. Yeah. I know. Even yeah, you're right. I've um, been tempted myself. Mm-hmm. I mean, and they work. <laughs> they're they're like the what, key to youth. And what what kind of supplements? CoQ10, um, all the B vitamins, selenium. 
there are plenty of others. <laughs> it's, oh. Is it the curcumin stuff too, um, or is that I not do so levocarnitine. Mm-hmm. It's changed a bit. I, I have the list, <laughs> and it depends on what type you have. So there's yeah. plenty of stuff out there. It's just interesting to get into the details, but it's just it's interesting to me to think about that. The way that you make that connection for yourself mm. is interesting to me personally. Yeah, and I I thought it was interesting that you brought it up too because mm-hmm. it's not something that I talk about that often, mm-hmm. just because. Like I said, there's no evidence, so it's not really brought up in my doctor's appointments. Mm-hmm. Well, and it doesn't need to be legitimized by bringing it up at your doctor's appointments. Like, they don't know everything about True. what causes cancer. Mm-hmm. They don't know. I mean, there's people getting diagnosed younger and younger. And, like, there is a lot yeah. that doctors do know, but it's not everything. It's true. So how did you know, Christina, how did you know something was wrong? Like, so in that period leading up to the mm. diagnosis, because you had that period where you weren't feeling well in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And so then what happened next? So I ended up having to quit my job Ugh. and leave my life behind in California. I moved back in with my family in Boston and I knew that I needed to see my specialist at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but my specialist didn't really have answers for me. She thought that this could potentially be just the natural progression of my illness, but I kind of refused to believe that because I knew my baseline and I knew my body. Um, over a period of a year and a half, I went from doctor to doctor just in search of answers. Some told me I was fine. Some tried to treat me psychiatrically and thought it was in my head, which was wildly dismissive. Um, mm-hmm. And over that time, I experienced the chronic fatigue, muscle pain, muscle weakness. And then I started to develop um, just fevers of unknown origin. Oh, that's interesting. I had night sweats. Yeah. I mean, and then did they take you seriously? Not yet. Oh, okay. <laughs> it wasn't until a year and a half later that I started developing um GI symptoms. And I don't know how much you want me to get into that, but... Um, as much as you want to. This <laughs> is public service. As much as you're comfortable. We'll just say that I wasn't holding down my food. <laughs> so it was flowing through. Well, you were, you... I was losing weight. Was how, not... Like how much weight? I lost about 17 pounds in about a month and a half. So substantial so, weight loss. Yeah, quickly. Unexplained. Um, <laughs> and blood in my stools. I mean, it's that... It's alarming, and by then I was able to get a second opinion and see a gastroenterologist, which you know took me a year, a year and a half to get there. So how long was it from when, like, so so you're a nurse, so you recognize the blood in the stool, and like some people Mm -hmm. might not know what it is, right? Just think they beats or something like that. But so you knew right away. So when you gave them that heads up, like, how long did it take for you to kind of get to the right person to give you the diagnosis? Thankfully, not too long. When I first started experiencing the GI symptoms, there was no blood markers, so Mm -hmm. I was dismissed again. Mm-hmm. But then when I started to see notice the blood, I went to my primary care nurse practitioner, actually, mm-hmm. who referred me to um, a gastroenterologist I was able to see the following week. And then the week after that, I had the diagnostic procedure, which was a, a flex, flexible sigmoidoscopy, which is essentially like a mini colonoscopy. Um, and it was through that procedure that I, I learned that I had colon cancer. I was not medicated for the procedure because it's considered relatively short. Oh. Um, yeah. <laughs> so you had no laughing gas, no nothing? No, nothing. And I remember the gastroenterologist um, telling me, okay, things look fine. I just need to advance to the sigmoid, which is like the highest level that mm-hmm. they 
advanced to. And then he just went silent. And I could just mm-hmm. sense the tension in the room just from my own medical background. I know that feeling. And I looked up from the stretcher at the screen and I saw the tumor staring me right in the face. And I knew what it was. Oh, that's such a hard way to get introduced to your cancer. Yeah, I'm so yeah. sorry. I saw it. I did. And as traumatic as it was, when I found out that it was indeed cancerous, I was like, an answer. Thank God I can do something. Yes, something treatable, something that there's a protocol for. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I have to say it was it was kind of difficult to watch the response that I received after the diagnosis because I had been telling people for so long that I wasn't feeling well. And they they believed me, but I don't think it was taken as seriously until the big C came into the picture. Mm-hmm. Well, can- cancer mobilizes people in a way that vague mental health possibly yeah. all in your head issues don't. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I'm not, you know, angry at anyone for that, but it was just interesting to see just the two situations next to each other, having the invisible illness and then having the big C and the response that I received mm-hmm. through either of them. Just interesting. Yeah, it is. I, I noticed a really interesting response um, I from my primary care physician when mm. he found out, because he was quite dismissive too. And mm. he found out it was like this whole like, please don't sue me kind of, uh, it was very different. Mm-hmm. I'm so <laughs> glad that I only had like two months. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the thing. I mean, I probably was, I knew I was unwell for about six months. It sounds like you knew you were clearly unwell for about a year and a half, it sounds like. Yes, but six months is still a significant amount of time. It does. It's the darkest time, too. It's, It's really the darkest time. I mean, so one of the things we've been hearing about is that colon cancer is happening younger and younger, too. And you're certainly a poster child for that because you're not even, you're not even, you're 30 just now, right? Yes. And I was yeah. diagnosed at 27. So yeah, the statistics have been rising for colorectal cancer patients um, between the ages of 20 to 45. Actually, last year, MD Anderson released some statistics um, that were supported by the National Cancer Institute and the American um, Cancer Society. Mm -hmm. And the statistics predicted that colon cancer is going to increase in 20 to 34 year olds by 90% by the year 2030. And for rectal cancer, it'll increase by 124%. So that is wildly significant. Um, And as a consequence, this year, the American Cancer Society actually lowered their um, age for when you start to get screened for colon cancer. Usually, once you turn 50, you go in for a colonoscopy once every 10 years if you're Mm. considered low risk. Whereas Mm. now, um, they lowered that to age 45. So at least, Mm. you know, the ACS is taking this seriously. Mm -hmm. And um, I just like to bring this up because as a young adult colon cancer patient, I should have received a colonoscopy at a much earlier point in my Mm -hmm. process, but because of my age, it just was never even touched upon. Mm -hmm. So if you're experiencing the, the signs and symptoms, be an advocate for yourself and request a colonoscopy because we tend to be dismissed at this age. Mm-hmm. No, I think it's what, so. What do you think is behind this? Like, what do you think is behind suddenly? I mean, these are ridiculous statistics, obviously. Yeah. Is it the food we're eating? Is it the environment? What do you think? So, according to all the headlines and you know all the science, there, there's no direct indicator or 
no one really knows right now, but I can't help but wonder if it's food or environmental. I don't know, but it's something that I think about quite a bit. Do you think about what caused your cancer? I do. I try not to fixate on it just because I don't know if I'll ever find an answer, but I can't help but put together the timeline with my mitochondrial disease diagnosis. And then also I grew up in a cancer cluster I lived on a small dead-end street and there was all types of cancer amongst my neighbors. There was thyroid, colon, leukemia, lung, stomach, and this is a small dead-end street in the South Shore, so I can't help but think about that. we we've talked about this and you've heard me talk about it on the podcast too but like it, i grew up on cape cod and mm. i i've noticed the same thing too and it's hard to separate the general stats out from your neighborhood but certainly when it's happening all around you it does feel like salem's lot yeah a bit, doesn't it absolutely yeah yeah no i think that's really i think it's really weird and i wonder too i mean i just i wonder about the environment and the food too i do mm-hmm. wonder about the especially meat colon. I mean, I, I think about what I eat all the time now. I mean, yeah. I, I was a generally healthy eater by most standards, yeah. but I, I try to pay more attention to those things now. Right. Well, and I, I think it can't be what you eat exclusively mm. because we, those of us who are healthy and eating well are still getting sick. I True. think it has to be something unavoidable. I think it has to be like something in the air or in the water, something that you cannot protect yourself against by like eating well. Or maybe the way you're born, I don't know. But mm. yeah, I don't feel like there's any, I don't think there's any real escape. But this is something sort of that the media tends to focus on a lot when they link it to this colon cancer too, which right. is the reason I asked the question. Mm. It just comes up a lot in it the does. classic online articles. It's a valid question. And yeah. I did go through all the genetic testing possible and everything was inconclusive. So are there genetic markers linked to colon cancer? There are. There is a type of genetic um, marker that puts mm-hmm. you at risk for colon cancer. It'll come to me later. Chemo brain. <laughs> yeah, no, chemo brain's a real thing. We know all about it. Totally is. No, it's totally true. So, what were what were some of the more difficult parts of your treatment? Like, what was tough for you during your treatment? So, I'd say my lowest point was when I experienced a recurrence. It was a year after my first diagnosis, so right around the time of my first cancerversary. I had been declared no evidence of of disease for a good six months or so. And you had had surgery to remove the tumor. Yes, I was able to forego chemotherapy, thankfully, at the time. Mm -hmm. And during my follow-up scan, they found a mass on my left lung, mm. um, and that turned to be, turned out to be metastatic disease. Mm-hmm. At this point, I had finally recovered from the first diagnosis. I was feeling well. I was get, re- growing stronger. Mm. I was had returned to work, um, gotten into grad school, was looking to move out of my parents' home, and then it came back. It's like oh a kick God. in the teeth. Yeah, that's so the biggest hard. fear that I think everyone worries about. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the way colon cancer typically spreads, it starts out in the colon, usually goes to the liver and then the lung, but for whatever reason, it skipped my liver. That's a and good that's thing, That's a very good thing, yeah. because yeah. the liver is much more difficult to treat, and the position of the tumor in my lung was really easy to be resected. Thank God. Clean margins, et cetera. So for metastatic disease, it was the good kind of metastatic disease, if you want to right. say that. Right. Um, so how long was that process of you you find out like, oh my God, I'm ready to get my life back together. Now I've got a recurrence. Mm-hmm. What, like how long did that period of treatment go on for after that? 
about nine to ten months. Jeez. I had lung surgery, and then I took a month in between to um, preserve my fertility, and I yeah. froze my eggs. So that took about a month, and then I went under um, six months of chemotherapy. There was twelve rounds. Every other week, three types of chemo for three days. Once I finished that, I actually had a septic blood infection, so I was hospitalized for that, which was a bit of a setback. Was um, that related to the surgery or immunocompromising? Um, I was immunocompromised, but I was also receiving IV fluids every day through my port at home. Mm-hmm. So it that's that was the place of entry at the time. The following March, I was declared no evidence of disease, and it's been a little over two years that Yay. I've been Yay. <laughs> That's really good. Yeah, it it feels good. <laughs> so one of the things you mentioned in the middle of all of this, which I did not get involved with, but Leanna, you did this, and I know you did this too, is fertility treatment. Mm, yes. So because I'm a nurse and I have a lot of friends in the healthcare field, um, my best friend actually texted me the night before my oncology appointment and said, you might want to think about freezing your eggs. Mm-hmm. And I thought, what? Like, I never even knew this was part of the whole deal. Um, so I asked my oncologist about it. Had I not brought it up, I don't necessarily think it would have been part of the conversation, which is kind of upsetting. Should always be part of the conversation for our age range. <laughs> Absolutely. Wow. Um, So I chose to hold off on treatment and freeze my eggs because at the time I was 27, I didn't necessarily know what I wanted in the future, especially considering the circumstances, but just have the option Mm -hmm. is huge. So I froze my eggs Um, and- How did you find that process? I would rather do chemotherapy again than fertility again. So you guys are getting injected with hormones like I see and- yeah, movies mm-hmm. and hear about from my friends. That's so it's, horrifying. it's every day you have to give yourself a shot. I was on two shots yeah. um, a day. And then every couple of days, and at the end it's every day, you get um, intimately acquainted with an ultrasound. Oh, <laughs> very intimately acquainted. <laughs> they, they, they put an ultrasound wand up your vaginal canal. They hand it to you, too to yeah. insert it no but it's, it's fine i mean but it's like really unpleasant every, oh yeah the worst day, sex ever day you have to give blood <laughs> oh yeah it was the worst sex ever yeah ironically to keep your fertility this oh is just my God. awful yeah yeah that was a surprise that that was that's something that you're not maybe well equipped for when you just heard that you got diagnosed with cancer yes oh. and then you're super emotional mm-hmm. and like you can't hot drink flashes. caffeine oh my god oh, oh you I had hot, hot flashes oh hot, I was hot and cold at the same time I didn't know that was even possible and I was so hungry I wish I would be driving home from work and it was only a half hour commute and I I I never do this but I would stop at McDonald's to have my pre-dinner before getting home to have my actual dinner. It was like you were pregnant. It was. Oh my god. You have you have all of the things. The follicles were just wow. And I was fortunate enough to respond quickly to the treatment. Oh good. Um so you got you produced plenty of eggs. eggs. Yeah. Like a hen. And I was lucky for that, but it gave me a newfound empathy for anyone with fertility issues to think that uh-huh. couples go through this for months or years at a time and for maybe the placement of the embryo to be unsuccessful. Like I just can't even imagine. So I can't either. It it gave me a whole new newfound respect for them. I, no. hope, I hope to never have to do fertility ever again. 
So like does what? insurance cover this? So not all insurance does. Mine did not. And that's mine, something. Mine did. Good. Okay, so it's really expensive, isn't it? It's yeah. It was about twelve grand. Um, oh my god! Did you up get front. help from the Livestrong Foundation? I did. Thankfully, okay. they were fantastic. And that's okay, something. so let's talk about this. Yes. So the podcast listeners can hear mm-hmm. this. Talk about that Livestrong Foundation. Yes. Tell us about support. It. Um, I believe it's called the Freedom Fertility Clinic, and I can mm-hmm. send you guys the link. But okay, great. there are resources out there that cover cancer-induced fertility preservation, that being one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a few others out there, but they are super efficient. They send you all the medications in the mail, um, and they paid for 75% of my Wow. Costs. Holy cow, that's yeah. fantastic. And it was so stressful because when I first received the um, the consult the, through the fertility specialist, she said, all right, neither of your insurances cover this. Um, it's going to cost about 12 grand. I want you to think about this over the weekend. But we do have this resource, you know, that does help with costs. Um, we'll apply and see if you're a candidate. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize how quickly they worked on the other end, and how, which was fantastic. But I left that appointment feeling very overwhelmed because I just assumed I didn't have coverage and I didn't like have the money. It's like basically you're getting a graduate degree, right? <laughs> or, wow. or a car, or I don't know, something very expensive, something mm-hmm. much more fun than cancer preservation fertility <laughs> treatment. Yeah doesn't sound like a good time Mm. oh my god so i mean i'm lucky that i had the opportunity to do that but Mm. i would not go through it again if you paid me and i'm but you've got your eggs now in a bank and how much does that cost like to keep the eggs on ice so i had to transport my eggs (laughs) and that was like 800 bucks or a thousand dollars about a year uh, after a year after you mm-hmm. get the fertility treatment done and your eggs frozen, the hospital only keeps it for a year. Um, and after that, the hospital will keep it, but it's you know eight hundred dollars a year every year, or you can get it mailed out to like a big bank in somewhere in somewhere flat, yeah, and square one of those square states <laughs> where my <laughs> eggs live, and um, it's three hundred dollars a month. A year. Okay. Three hundred dollars a year. It is cheaper when you have them mailed out, um, and I, I did the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. So I get that bill once a year, and I know that they're safe. And, and I'm going to ask a really horrible question here, but I feel like this podcast is like the only place where we can talk mm. about this. So, do you bequeath your eggs to someone? Do you leave your eggs in a will? Or I'm actually does... in the process of figuring that out right now because it's an interesting legal question. It so, is. So on mine, I can put someone else's name on gets to decide what to do with these eggs okay. in the case that I am incapacitated. Got it. And that person is my sister, Leslie. I think, you know, I think I talked to her about it, but now that I'm thinking about it, maybe You I might want to revisit that. I'm I don't know. I'm going to revisit it. Mm. <laughs> no, what's going like, on with your eggs? You're in charge of my eggs. Just FYI. <laughs> Just make sure you're not broken. <laughs> oh, sorry. You can, you can donate them to science if I'm dead. Mm. Interesting. And that's something I'm looking into right now because I don't really remember at the time what I did. I believed that I checked the box to have them used for research if I didn't use them, but I kind of feel differently about that now. So mm. I'm in the process of changing that. And um, I am writing my will and everything just because it's something I've always wanted to do. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, it, it is a question that, that everyone should ask and think about for the future. If for some reason you were to pass away, what do you want? to have done with them. Mm-hmm. But it's not something you're even thinking about at the time. No, there's way too much to think about. Exactly. You have, you have real life right now problems to mm-hmm. deal with. 
But then, of course, when the, you know, when the storm passes, too. Yes. I mean, I'm so glad that you guys have your eggs banked Me right too. now. It's just a really nice conversation to be having with you guys to know that you both have options, whether you want to or not, for the price of 300 bucks a year, which seems reasonable. Yes. Like, you've done it. But I also can appreciate how hard it was. And also... I'm imagining how hard it would be to make this decision with a $12,000 price tag when you may be leaving work and moving back in with your parents, Mm -hmm. um, which so many of us have to face. Right. And I I just want any cancer patient to know that it's important to ask about your risk to fertility when you go in for that consult because not unfortunately not all providers bring up this topic. There are national guidelines out there, but... It's just not discussed enough and you have the right to know your risks and you have the right to hold off on treatment if that's what you want to do. Um, It's just something I'm really passionate about. I mean, you have to be your own best advocate. You do. Like, it would be lovely if it was a perfect system where everything that you needed to hear got communicated to you, but Mm -hmm. it's not. Mm -hmm. Like, you have to do your own research. You have to talk to other patients. I mean, if you if you're lucky early on, you find like a cancer friend who can like guide you through this process because mm. you need a mentor. It's so true. So this is another question that came up too, like that we talk a lot about too. This feeling like really disassociative, feeling PTSD. We've mentioned chemo mm. brain a few times in the podcast, and I mean, I don't know, Leanne and I have found that to be really real. Um, how did you find that when you were going through your treatment? Like, did you feel yourself? I felt emotions very intensely, probably about halfway through my treatment. I think the emotions just kind of caught up with me Hmm. because I was just go, go, go for so long and kind of in that survival mode that I think we all experience towards the beginning of a diagnosis. But more specifically, after my treatment was finished was when I really started to experience um, some intense emotions. And I was eventually diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder. I would have panic attacks just from these random triggers that I couldn't really identify at Mm. the time. And yeah, I just developed some paralyzing anxiety after some time. And it really came to surface around my cancerversary because both of my diagnoses were around the same time of year. So that time of year is always kind of... What time of year is that? September. That was when I was diagnosed in fall. It's like... And I I love the fall. (laughs) It's interesting. The fall... I've always had a problem with the fall and it's... Like, there's something about the light almost that can Mm. trigger things. It's just that change of the light or change of the season I think that gets me a little freaked out now Mm. in a way. Yeah. And I do think the after having the mental effects after cancer treatment after the active treatment ends. after you're sort of through the war yeah. exactly yeah so the word ptsd was thrown around initially but i eventually got a diagnosis of gad the generalized anxiety disorder and what's the difference exactly it sounds kind of similar is, to me is the, is the treatment options different because ptsd you work more with the I I believe so. Um, I'm still kind of figuring it out, to be honest. I think everyone's still figuring it (laughs) out, to be honest. (laughs) But I'm here, right? But for me, what works is finding a good therapist. Mm -hmm. I found a fantastic one. Oh, good. We need to get that person's name. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And um, I I do need medication for it that I take once a day, but Mm -hmm. it just helps with those triggers and to just 
calm the nerves that were becoming my baseline, a very elevated baseline at that point. Mm. Um, and so that it, it's pretty simple for me, but and it's improved over time. I'm, I, I kind of forget that I even have it at this point, but That's good. that That's means great. I found the the right treatment. But yeah. I just like to encourage anyone going through some kind of health crisis or whatever it may be to just make your mental health a priority. It's equally as important as physical health. And the two are very connected. I would notice feeling physically worse if my mental state wasn't in a good place. Mm-hmm. Um, so to don't not be afraid to reach out for help and keep searching until you find what works for you because there's no one size fits all when it comes to mental health. Mm. Um, well, and it seems like such an obvious thing, but so many people do not go to therapy. Mm. They don't even think about, wow, I had something terrible happen. Maybe I should talk to someone about it. Right. You just bought, like, this should be common sense, right? It should be. But, you know, one of the things I have to say is it's so daunting to find someone, a shrink, a therapist, whatever, to talk to, even when things are basically okay, or you're just having minor problems with work and find someone you really connect with. And I think when you're going through cancer treatment, I can only speak for myself. It was harder to find anyone to connect with in general during Absolutely. that situation. And so you was, have no energy to no. do any of the work of it. Mm-hmm. So I had I had a pre-existing relationship with a therapist back out in California that I continued with, and I'm so grateful oh, that I was great. able to do that. That was great. But I did seek out help here in Boston, and I didn't find the right fit. Mm. Um, the right fit's so important. I think I might have kept looking if I hadn't already had someone to fall towards, you know what I mean, mm-hmm. to like use a little bit more. But I mean, it is hard, isn't it? Like, it is. And it's a daunting task, too, because every time you start a new relationship with a therapist, for lack of better words, you have to right. backtrack, relive the entire experience. Your childhood. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And triggers. And- exactly. So... Once I found the right fit, I was very grateful for that because I hated having to relive that experience yeah. so often. <laughs> How did you find that therapist? How did you find that person? Like, what was your process? I actually looked on psychologytoday.com and okay. looked at the different profiles that therapists have. Mm-hmm. And I felt just because of my background that seeing like a psychiatric nurse practitioner was best for me yeah. because so much of my um, distress was based on my health. So I needed to be able to talk medical with someone. Mm-hmm. So if I were to go to like a licensed mental health counselor or someone within a different role, it may not have been the best fit. And that's what I was finding because mm-hmm. I needed to be able to speak medicine with someone. You needed to have a little bit of shorthand. Exactly. Because I just found that I was explaining myself too often and wasting time mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. trying to explain like what I was going through physically. So um, I felt that that was a good fit for me. And I read the profile of the psychiatric nurse practitioner and it just seemed to jive with my mm-hmm my vibes. That's a really good advice (laughs) though. I love that piece of practical advice. Just go online, Mm -hmm. read the bios. And know what you want. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Like it sounds like you knew exactly what you wanted or you like had a direction to go in. I did. And a lot of that was due to seeing the wrong people initially and realizing Mm -hmm. what didn't work. And being just a self-aware person. Yeah. Right. Not being afraid of saying this isn't the right fit. Mm, Definitely. That's huge. Um, We've talked about a lot of the darkness. <laughs> There's a lot of darkness in colon cancer that metastasizes to your lung. For sure. But were there any light moments in this? I mean, were there any moments and glimmers of like, I had a good time? Or like victories? Or maybe there weren't. I mean, it's just 
changed me as a person. And I think everyone, as cliche as it sounds, everyone mm-hmm. can kind of relate to that. I just feel like I live my life more authentically now and I have more purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really just the whole experience has really affected me in terms of my place in the healthcare field. And I really enjoy when I do take care of people because I feel like I just have a whole different piece that I bring to the equation. Um, so it's it's really affected my career. I think my my relationships are stronger. You know, some have like everyone, some of us have had relationships that have failed and through this process, but and I think I've just learned to trust my instincts above everything mm. else because I knew something was wrong for so long and now I know that I was right. <laughs> <laughs> for like a lack of better. What I mean, you you went through a lot of doctors not knowing. Mm-hmm. I can't. I can't even imagine that. Yeah, like, what do you want to tell healthcare practitioners? I know this is a huge question for you. <laughs> I know it's like you're. you know, but, I, but I mean, you, I have a novel to some healthcare professionals. Right. Yes. Um, know that the patient knows their body better than anyone, and just take the time to listen to that person's experience because if someone feels that something's off chances are that's the case um that might sound vague but i felt like that was really what i experienced what you just described was exactly how i felt Mm. and exactly what i presented with and i do think that i've heard this story so many times now that those are really important i told all of my doctors you know more about this disease than i do but i know more about my body Mm. than you do we are a team that's huge Right. And I mean, all I kept saying was something's wrong. Mm-hmm. Something's wrong. You know, and it's just, I think that's so, I don't know, I think that's precious. And I'm really, ugh, I'm so glad that you're staying with the medical profession, Thanks. that you're deepening yeah. your practice. Mm-hmm. And I'd really like, like, you. like you to be my nurse practitioner someday. <laughs> just stay in Boston. I'll add you to the list. Oh, I, I intend on staying in Boston. Good, yeah. good. Because I really think we need you. And I also think that... Um, what I'd be really interested in is a nurse practitioner or doctor or any healthcare professional who has the psychological insights too. Because mm. I think I hope that you'll continue with that as part of your practice. Oh, I totally intend on it. Like I don't necessarily see myself in psych full time, but it's so much part of everything, what regardless of what specialty you work in. Well, and those nurses, like you see your doctor every once in a while, but you see those nurses all the time. Mm-hmm. Like you are in the perfect position to help people know what direction to face. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like you you have a deep relationship with those with those patients. Mm. Well, not now. We're going to ask you for some protocols. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Yeah. So, what would you? What are you, we usually put together? What three or four protocols? Yeah. Pieces of advice to give people. Okay. Um, and you can riff on anything we've talked about too, because I think there's been some you, good protocols. Yeah, no, there's been some really good protocols. So, just my pieces of advice. Yeah. Okay. I'd say just for the first one, trust your instincts, listen to your body, and be your own advocate. Mm-hmm. Um, second would be to ask about fertility preservation at your first oncology appointment. And anticipate that it's going to be a tough road to hoe. <laughs> True. Mm-hmm. And my final thought is to just prioritize your mental health. Mm-hmm. It's equally as important as physical health. 
Mm. It definitely is. Mm. I wonder so much about that connection. I do too. And how that feeds into cancer. Yes, and the stress response. And mm-hmm. ugh. I mean, we were talking yeah. about that before we recorded, but just that sort of like humming feeling, uh, the anxiety. Yeah. It, yeah. Just that baseline. Yeah. Can't be good. Uh, it's it's really interesting stuff. And again, like I'm just so glad that you've um, deepened your interest in the medical field and will continue to add to it too, because I think we need so many people who have this history and background. Thanks, ladies. We're yeah. Lucky, we're lucky to have you. Yeah. Well, Thank you. thanks, Christina. And mm-hmm. thanks for coming in and talking to us so honestly and frankly about everything. Mm. Thanks for having me and making my dreams come true, like I said. <laughs> and we all take off the bucket list. <laughs> Let's just all say one last thing. Thanks, Thanks, Cancer. Hey, guys. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Thanks, Cancer. If you want to find us, you can find us on Facebook at Thanks, Cancer, on Instagram as Thanks, Cancer, and on Twitter as, guess what? Thanks, Cancer. And if you enjoyed today's episode and you're so inclined, please give us a five-star review on iTunes. And subscribe. Yeah, definitely subscribe. And listen, we want to hear your stories too, so please reach out to us at info at thanksgancer.com if you have something to share. Well, the traffic stopped you lay on the horn and you ask yourself, where is my cancer unicorn? gate with your cancer card we're your passport date cause cancer's damn hard oh thanks cancer thanks cancer thanks cancer victories in the dark